welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today I am interviewing Jackson Piaz, who is a return guest. Jackson came on the show when he was getting ready to finish the largest diet break study ever done, literally ever. Um, he has a PhD sports nutritionist. He is a researcher, obviously, and he is a physique coach. The thing I really enjoy about Jackson and the reason why I had him back on as well as follow all of his content personally is that he's a very, very good bridge between uh, the gap of science and research and being a bro and experienced bodybuilder in the gym, in the trenches, doing the work. And we had a really long discussion as to why you can't always just look at the evidence and why the evidence-based community isn't always accurate and sometimes kind of soft. And he means soft as in they are using a weak mentality to go about training and nutrition, which is a really interesting outlook to take as somebody who is an evidence-based PhD researcher. Uh, so it goes against what you would expect. But the cool thing about this conversation is that we really try to pinpoint where the gaps can be and how you can actually use the research, like how you can put a lens on your yourself when you're reading research to know this is applicable or it's not, or this is applicable to me specifically, or it's just not even practical, or there's limitations to this type of research. So we dive into some specific things with volume, intensity, RP and RIR, flexible dieting, meal plans, bodybuilding, uh, the mental side of it all, fat loss. And we really kind of took it from a perspective of what does the evidence show? What do we see that people are doing incorrectly within the evidence-based community? And where do we think people are doing, uh, what, what people are doing wrong on the other side, which is non-evidence-based? And then how do we meet them in the middle? right? What is the thing that you should be doing as a listener to get the best results possible? Uh, so I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I think you guys are going to enjoy it as well. And most importantly, it is extremely applicable to anybody who wants to lose fat, build muscle, get stronger and create the best physique possible. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a huge favor, uh, take a screenshot of the show, post it on your Instagram story, tag myself at Cody McBroom, tag Jackson at Jackson Pios, both of which are going to be linked in the description of this podcast, as well as where you can find him and his free content. So without any further ado, let's talk to the one and only Jackson Pias. All right, man, I'm excited to get you back on because it's been, I mean, shit, I actually think the last time you were on the podcast, um, I think it was before the ice cap trial even aired actually um i mean it's been a minute like obviously you and i have talked a few quite a bit since then but um that's how long ago it was and so uh, i know a lot has changed for you you're in bali now you're um you were pursuing uh, bodybuilding at a completely different level than the last time we talked and then you have some injuries so you've been man you've had a, <laughs> a wild journey since last we talked so I'm, I'm excited to get you on uh we won't dive too much into some of that stuff just because i know you've been talking a lot about it everywhere um but for those who don't know you kind of just give us like your story in a nutshell briefly of just like who jackson is and, and kind of um where they can find you first so that way when people want to hear the crazy shit you've been going through they can go check out your social media and, and find all that it's funny hearing the ice cap trial still gives me shivers at this point <laughs> being a, a bumpy three-year-old that that little one anyway so um basically i made my name coming up through tertiary education specific to nutrition so i started with my bachelor of science studies in exercise and health sports science did well with those progressed into more exercise physiology specific studies, um, completing my honors degree, being offered scholarships to complete a nutrition specific um, 
PhD. And my PhD has focused on basically nutritional strategies that can assist athletes with losing fat while maintaining as much uh, muscle as they can and uh, maintaining performance along the way. And a lot of my research has focused on refeeds, diet breaks, um, even some uh, recent supplement trials as well. And during that sort of when my PhD started, that's when I started doing uh, some one-to-one nutrition work with clients in a variety of domains, bodybuilders, uh, power lifters, rugby athletes, boxers, uh, you name it, plenty of gen pop as well. And that has sort of got me to the position that I am in now, which is basically distributed close to half-half between one-to-one nutrition coaching work and educating as much as I can through YouTube, blogs, uh, infographics, reels, you name it. Um, Just trying to spread the good word um, in the industry because uh, as me and you both know, there is a lot of shit word in this industry and it can be sometimes difficult to navigate and especially for beginners trying to work out what is gospel and what is bullcrap. So that's me. I love it, man. We're gonna we're gonna hammer on that last piece, but before we do, um, I just thought of this because I, I remember seeing you post a lot of content way back of you doing. Um, I don't know how like if you were actually fighting, but just like boxing and athletic work. And I know there's a picture on your side of you like doing sprint with the the parachutes behind you and shit like that. Um, I guess my question, like, at what point did you decide? Because now it's just like straight bodybuilding, and obviously, you know you can see how effective that's been. At what point did you decide that you were like, you know what, I need to have tunnel vision with this because that's how I'm gonna maximize gains, like not fucking around with all these other goals um, or even modalities. And, and when is that actually necessary? Cause there's a lot of people who like doing that kind of stuff, but how disadvantageous is that? If that makes sense. Yeah, so to answer the first part, yes, I have officially competed um, in boxing bouts and I was I was going pretty hard at that for a while, training four or five times a week for a couple of fights each year. Uh, but I've always had a passion for bodybuilding since, I don't know, the first time I was in the gym. Never really pursued it too actively, but was always interested and in, kept my sort of think toes in the water to basically keep a breadth with what's been going on in the bodybuilding industry and obviously I work with a lot of bodybuilders as well and I sort of got to this point um, while I was boxing and lifting weights on the side you know trying to um, stay quick sharp and have high endurance while also trying to add size is uh, is sometimes a tug of war you're sort of pulling in in two different directions and I got to this point uh, I guess year and a half ago, two years ago, um, when I thought, geez, I'd like to give bodybuilding a proper go. And I don't want to be body bodybuilding when I'm in my late thirties. And I mean, um, legit bodybuilding, like walking around for, for my weight at 110, 115 kilos, uh, which is unco- uncomfortable. I don't want to be doing that when I'm sort of potentially having a family, having kids and all that. So I thought, right, okay, my window is actually pretty fucking short here if I want to tick that box. And I do want to tick that box because I felt like when I'm 50 and sitting in my rocking chair, that's potentially a regret that I might have and think, oh, geez, I wish I gave that a good crack and gave it my all, see how it could go. Uh, So it was just a decision of like, okay, boxing, uh, as much as I love it, 
uh, I can do that um, later on in life and not necessarily competing, but I can do it with like zero health, negative health implications and keep fit, healthy, blah, blah, blah. Um, that can happen later, but bodybuilding, I can't really do that later. If I want to do it to the level that I want to take it. Um, so I wanted to sort of do it quite quickly. Boxing was going to be a detriment to that. So boxing went to the wayside and, and um, temporarily and I put all my eggs um, in the bodybuilding basket and was basically living, um, breathing, uh, bodybuilding and not really letting, not really having any part of my lifestyle that was detracting uh, from that. And if it was, I would sort of remove it from my lifestyle. Um, so that sort of put me to the point where I am now, which was pursuing bodybuilding heavily for, for 12 months with good success up until um up until sort of my string of injuries that, that you and I know well. Um, but yeah, it was sort of just that decision that I, I, I did want to compete in bodybuilding to the best of my ability. And I don't want that to be happening in my late thirties. Um, we can, we don't want to get into the health side, but I think with some of the news that we've seen this week and whatnot, it's becoming more and more apparent that bodybuilding into your later years uh, is going to shorten your lifespan significantly. Um, specifically if you're going down the PED, IFBB route. Um, so yeah, that's probably the best way that I can explain the thought process and decision-making behind that. Oh, man. I actually like, even aside from the actual sport aspect, just the mentality of it. And I, th I remember you talking about, um, I think it was just talking about moving to Bali or something like that a while back, but uh, the mentality of just taking action now and, and, because you don't have that much time here, right? And that is a common trait of anybody who's successful at anything, period. You know, and, you, and it's even funny, like hearing you say uh, in your rocking chair when you're 50, and to most people, they would be like, when I'm 80, you know? It, but like, to me, I, I get it. And I'm like, man, like, that's the mentality you have because you're just shortening that window. It's like, no, I don't have time to wait. Like, it's now, you know, it's now. And, and the people that delay things are the people that just don't do anything, period. So, um that's dope. And obviously, there's, like, there, there, there's all these 50 year olds listening to this, like, thing. fuck you, Jackson. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, there's also a lot of people at that or above, let's say, uh, with regret. You know what I mean? Like, Gary Vee had that whole thing where he said he would go to, and who knows if he actually did it, but he would go to retirement homes and he would talk to people. And he said the most common thing he heard from everybody was just all the shit they regret not doing. You know what I mean? Scary, like, huh? Yeah, even like in and out of bodybuilding or sport or fitness or anything, it's just like, man, there's just, we don't know how much time there is. So to to not do something because you're fearing judgment or failure or risk or anything like that, it's just, it's it's not a good enough reason, you know? 100%. So, man, moving back into what you were kind of saying uh, with, uh, you know, you're, you're pursued your PhD, you've done some research. Um, I really have always vibed with this is why I've hired you now twice to do my uh, training and nutrition. And it's because you're the, the PhD who's also still a bro. And I like, I appreciate that because I think there's a lot where you can't just only look at one side of it. You know, there's some people who are just straight bro and they don't use any science and you really can't trust their, what they're putting in. And there's, I mean, there's huge YouTubers, Instagrammers, all that kind of shit. And then there's other people who are just doing science that are not jacked, not doing the work that barely even trained and they don't have any experience working with real people. So I, I appreciate you in that middle ground. But my question is, is, you know, something you said to me was that the evidence-based community uh, you fear is getting weak. So I want you to just kind of define that, like, and this isn't a shot at the evidence-based community because obviously we're a part of that, but 
Um, what do you mean by that? And what are you seeing happening? And where do you think that middle ground should be? Yeah, so this is probably a, a topic that I'm pretty damn passionate about. So like when I guess probably you and me were getting into fitness and there wasn't really too much evidence-based content at the time, like we had forums and we had like magazines and that was sort of it, you know, and the it was very easy to figure out that if you wanted to, at that time, if you wanted to pursue bodybuilding or physique sports, it was fucking hard because you would read these magazines and you'd read the diets and they're having like brown rice, chicken breast, broccoli, like oatmeal. Um, and then you would see these like spreads of like Dorian training or Ronnie training and like basically just looked like 90 minutes of punishment in picture form. Like it looked horrible. And, and you sort of look at this and, and you start making that connection in your brain. Like, geez, if I want to pursue this, I got to be prepared that it's going to be pretty fucking hard. And that was sort of the mentality that sort of I carried getting into it. And then when like you sort of, when you are faced with challenges with your eating, when the cravings come, when the hunger comes, or when you're faced with challenges in your training, when it really starts hurting in those deep sets on a hack squat and you're sort of questioning life. It's, it's a lot easier to process because you're already mentally prepared for it. Now, fast forward to where we are now in, in sort of, we've seen this wave of, it's almost like a fad in a sense. Um, but it's this, this wave of, of evidence based information circulating through the fitness industry. And it has done a lot of good so much good but i think there are some downsides to some components of the evidence-based movement that aren't typically discussed and i'm going to touch on two of sort of the main ones that are in my mind so on one hand we had this creation of flexible dieting if it fits your macros and uh, we've had a lot of good research that has confirmed that it doesn't really matter uh, what foods you eat per se as long as your sort of calories are in line with your energy needs and your goals uh, then you are going to make progress and this was groundbreaking at the time because this is coming off the back of, of all the best physique athletes saying that you couldn't have junk you couldn't have treats you had to eat the like the hardcore bland diet year out basically so this basically taught the industry that oh hang on like dieting doesn't have to be as miserable as we originally thought it had to be to be able to make progress and this was fantastic for a lot of people like a lot of people on those on that fringe that perhaps weren't ready to fully commit to the boiled chicken breast and brown brown rice but now we're able to sort of still be involved with the fitness industry still make progress still get fulfillment from that so that was great but what happened uh, was that it has been taken too far. And now we have fitness industry proponents, influencers, um, basically trying to manipulate this concept of flexible dieting or, or if it fits your macros is probably a manipulation in itself. But the concept is how much bullshit can I get away with in my diet while still making progress 
and how easy can I make the diet for myself while still making progress? Now, that mindset to have is a very, very dangerous one because we've got now got people who are entering the industry at a young age and they're coming with the initial perception that fitness is easy and that you can eat whatever the fuck you want to, to a degree and you shouldn't really have to restrain too much or otherwise you're a bro. And then all of a sudden they start sort of pushing pushing the envelope in trying to reach higher ranks within fitness and they face challenges because it doesn't really matter what you're eating. Eventually your calories are going to get to a point or your body fat is going to get to a point where shit's hard anyway. And they're not accustomed to that sensation of difficulty or having to go through discomfort. And that's as far as they go because they, they were never prepared for discomfort initially. So they do not have the tools or strategies to navigate that when that comes on. And it basically just shuts their ceiling off in how far they can progress very, very quickly. So I expect that like most things in the world, that it's going to go full circle. And like we started with the bros, bro approach, like the very bland, um, unenjoyable diet. And then we've sort of come around to the, if it fits your macros and we can have a pop tart every day during prep, or we can have um, a, a Mars bar and some ice cream to fill our macros at the end of the night. Um, and we have even people who is like, literally like we'll fast all day to be able to have a top, a pint of Ben and Jerry's at the end of the night. And like, is that, is that how we're going to define health and fitness these days? Like, Oh, I'm not sure, but I do start to see, I am starting to see like a little bit of pushback from even from us guys in the evidence-based community saying, okay, hang on guys, maybe we fucking push this a little bit too far maybe we need to swing things back in the other direction a little bit maybe find um a balancing point like i am i am all for and as you are being able to make be able to have the ability to make flexible macronutrient substitutions when you need them i.e for occasional social meals and the, the frequency of them is going to be dictated by your goals or when you're just a little bit burnt out from the diet and the regimentation of the consistent eating, that's okay. But completely flexible approach all the time and making your dietary decisions based on what's going to be the easiest for you and what's going to taste the nicest is a very bad, it's, they are not strong footing to hold your diet up. And if they are the fundamentals of your diet, as you push into a prep or push into a fat loss cut, you'll find that you're just not able to take it that far because when the discomfort will come, when the challenges will come and they will, you just won't know how to deal with them. So that's sort of one part is sort of these people coming into the industry now with the perception that dieting is now easy and it's not. Um, and people are going to be in for a rude shock and, they're basically going to be cutting themselves in the heels if they do take that approach because they're never really going to get anywhere. Because if you are want to get anywhere remarkable, rememberable, special, it's going to take some persistence through discomfort. And if you weren't prepared for that, if you haven't had practice with that, there's no fucking chance you're going to be able to deal with it. So moving on to sort of where I think potentially people are coming soft with their training as well. So I touched on it. We would open the magazine spreads and we would see like these absurd, like triple giants, like giant sets, Ronnie Coleman and, and 
Dorian looking extremely uncomfortable with everything that he does. Um, and we were like, okay, training supposed to be hard. And, and like, even when I got into the gym, I didn't, I didn't have any knowledge. Like I didn't know what, how many reps I was supposed to be doing. All I, my only real understanding was like, whatever I'm doing in here, it's supposed to be quite hard. It's supposed to hurt. And that's not, that's far from the, the optimal mindset to have. We can be a lot better than that. But that was where my um, initial perception was. And then fast forward, fitness, the evidence-based community again. We've been injected with this research of um, repetitions in reserve, um, ratings of perceived exertion, um, basically uh, a way to measure our proximity to failure in a working set. And to couple that, we had research coming out that suggested that perhaps uh, we don't have to take sets to our limit to failure to be able to make progress. And perhaps maybe even taking them to failure could actually be detrimental. Now, as the fitness industry usually does, it takes things too far. And now we've got this new generation of lifters who are basically laughing at lifters who take their sets to failure. And it's quite absurd because you've got these 60 kilo soaking wet noobs laughing at this 300 pound bodybuilder doing leg extensions to fail. Like, haha, you idiot. That's so wrong. It's like, okay, right. Um, and what I think the main problem is, there's actually a couple of problems with this. The initial problem is this perception that training to your maximum potential or your maximum capacity is a bad thing. Is that it's detrimental? Uh, I do not agree with that. What sport in the world do you, can you train submaximally the whole time and optimize the competitive outcome? There's none. And so now we're going to say like, just from a logical perspective, like, okay, so bodybuilding is the one thing that we can do submaximal work all the time and expect to be as big, as strong as possible. It doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense. Now for noobs, just getting in the gym, they're very highly sensitive to tension stimulus. I think some submaximal stuff can be okay because they're going to grow from that. They haven't been accustomed to any tension or stress on the muscles before, so they're going to grow. And they probably don't, don't need to rush to their limit right away. It's like milk it, some submaximal progress for a little bit. And then once you do get to a, a, an a experienced training status, then, you, got, then you, you can start pushing things a little bit higher. But for people like you and me who are in the experienced um experienced here i think for us to make continued progress beyond what we made in sort of newbie in the young years i think training to our limit is the only way that's going to be able to provide sustained progress and i think we do have a lot of lifters in that experience bracket that are doing the bulk of their work in rir three four and they're just not really getting anywhere they're sort of sitting where they were last year so i think this tra training to failure or training to your maximum capacity becomes more and more important the more of the advanced level you become because i think the body is just becomes better and better at resisting change and the only way that you are going to be able to push the body to somewhere it doesn't want to go is by giving it a stimulus that it's never seen before and a stimulus that it's never seen before is your maximum capacity. It's, it's the failure. A RIR3, the whole way through a training block, like some people are doing, that's a training stimulus that it's seen over and over and over again. So 
from a logical perspective, how is that a stimulus that's giving the body a reason to want to adapt? It doesn't make sense. Um, so the, the problem is with the, the, the young guys coming in who have sort of jumped on the evidence-based bandwagon and sort of not having too much knowledge of um, what happened previous to the evidence-based movement. And they just come in and they just laugh at the bros like they're idiots. The, the biggest guys in the world are, are doing the worst possible approach to bodybuilding. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and they come in and they, and they say, okay, well, now we've got to do all of our stuff submaximal. And if we go too hard, it's bad. And this creates this, this is combining with the mentality that fitness is supposed to be easy. And if we're, if things are too uncomfortable, then we're doing it wrong, either from a dieting perspective or a training perspective. So they come in, they start training and, and, and they expect training not to feel too hard. And I'm just certain that if you go in with that mentality of like, oh, don't want to push it too hard. Like don't want to get too uncomfortable that you're just really not going to get anywhere in the sport. So I think it's interesting and I think that potentially it's going to do a little bit of a full circle thing again in the training domain um, because people are going to realize that their progress is progress is just not that great. Um, and um, I, I know that from as a scientist sort of relying on anecdote is a pretty low blow, but I was, I was a massive advocate of the RAR um, RPE stuff when it first came out because I didn't know any better. And like you hear these very high, these guys um, with uh, high status in the evidence-based community coming out and say, okay, like, um, you know, you want to do like most of your stuff in RAR four to two and like maybe a touch in one and we'll stay away from zero. Most of the time you hear these guys saying that. So you're like, okay, this must be the way. And I don't consider myself a training specialist per se. Like nutrition is more of my thing. Um, so I hear it and I adopt it. And man, like I just don't, didn't make great progress at all. And I was like, this is shit. Like, I don't feel like I'm really like challenging myself too much and the progress is pretty poor. And it wasn't until I uh, sort of changed my mindset and thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to think critically. It might be wrong, but I'm going to think critically about this and, and combine my own logic, the experience of the biggest physiques in the history, as well as the research with the research specifically showing that training to failure seems to be more beneficial than the more advanced of a training status you are. I'm going to combine all of that and I'm just going to put it into my own approach and started making quantum leaps um, in, in my physique uh, last year. So um, that's, that's sort of one ma major sort of summary of one of the main issues. But the other issue is people just, especially people coming into the industry, they just don't fucking know what an RAR3 feels like if they've never had a balls to the wall, like death set on hack squats where someone's having to pull you out from the bottom because you can't move. Like, unless you've done that, like, how are you going to know what an RAR three is? There's no chance. So like they come in like, eh, like, oh, kind of felt a little bit hard, but like could have done a few more like RAR two, like, and, and, and the classic, and you would have seen this a lot with the guys coming through your gym. It's like, you get them to, to, put on the bar like what they think um, they could do for like 10 reps. And then you as the trainer just sit there and like, you just push them and you like see like how many they can get. And I've, I've seen times where like, we're, we're talking like 18, 19, 20 reps. So someone's logged 10 reps at an RR of two. And they think that they've done a great set. there, like tick the box, green light. 
and then you've got something let, let, let's pretend we've got person b who all of a sudden disregards rr to some degree and they put the weight on the bar and they say i'm just going to go to as many as i can and they get 18 and it fucking hurts a lot more and it creates a lot more fatigue but they got 18 compared to the other person who got 10. map that out over a training year what sort of difference is that going to be causing to the physique a negative one oh i that's a hard case to make if someone's doing close to like double the workload per set than person a and what I think is the best way to summarize the issue with training at the moment and people entering the evidence-based community is they're just leaving a shitload on the table and they don't even know it. And there's, there's so much I can unpack there. I like, I know for me too, just being an entrepreneur, uh, we have a, a fairly large business now and I've never had any handouts. You know, I had to like build it from scratch. So to me, it, it's all like one of the biggest issues with everything you've said, even from the dieting perspective, it's constantly trying to take the easy way out. And that's what like really fucks with my head. Cause it's like, how can you, I mean, this sport analogy is great. Cause you think of like Kobe, like Kobe never went to the gym was like, I'm just going to like, kind of try today. Like, like, no, he went in there. He's like, I'm going to do my absolute fucking best every single time, but that's what made him great. So to me, when you start adopting that, like, I just don't have to work as hard. I don't have to do as much. I'm going to like leave a, a quite a bit in the tank. Like you're setting yourself up for failure in all other areas of your life. You know what I'm saying? So um, I hundred percent agree. One, one question I would bring up is um, on the RIR and RPE stuff. Cause I wouldn't know this, but I, I've talked a lot about some of the stuff you said. And uh, in fact, I even just, I share my, my training on my story every single day. And I had, there's a picture of me doing leg extensions and I'm on my like second set, I think it was. And I was like halfway through the set and I look like I'm going to shit my pants. Like I'm, I'm squeezing so fucking hard. And I said like, this is an RIR two, like, and I'm, I still have like four more reps before I even finish that RIR two. And it's a 15 rep set. Like, but just to paint a picture for people, like it's, it's a gun to your head. Like you have yeah. two reps in the tank, you know, and it's, and it is, it's very uncomfortable, but I've, I think people need to film themselves training. Cause that's what really helped me is I like filmed myself and I turned at the camera and was like, that was a RR one. I got, no, I got one left maybe. And then I watched it and I was like, dude, I, like I just popped out of that squat, like butter, like that was easy, you know? And I realized, yeah. um, but there actually was a study. So there was a study where they put people on the bench, rest, probably familiar with it. And they said, you know, put your 10 rep max on there. And I want to say like the highest was 26, the average was 12 or 16, I think. And the lowest was 12 or something, but it's just, that's, it, that's proof, you know, that this, this, they all did way. more than 10. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like my question for you is in all these RPE and RIR studies, do you know if they've ever used anybody who is that advanced or like really experienced person? Cause I know if somebody asked me to be in an RPE study and they were going to take my training and tweak it for the next eight weeks and pay me pennies on the dollar, I'd say, no, there's no way I'm doing it because I got a life. I like my training the way it is. <laughs> like, I, I don't, I don't need that. You know, um, do you know if they've ever done those kind of studies on people of that degree? There's one meta meta analysis that I often um, go back to. And it basically it combined like a bunch of training studies of various experience levels and various, I guess, RIRs, so like sub-maximal to, to maximal. And they basically analyzed the muscle growth, but then they did a sub-analysis, like muscle, um, muscle growth per like sub-max versus max and like in the experience bracket that you had. So um, it, what it showed was that um, 
for an inexperienced lifter, like just coming in, maximal training like to failure wasn't any more beneficial than like having a few reps in the tank for the, for the, for the, that bracket. But for advanced guys, there was a significant uh, benefit to muscle growth with taking to failure versus leaving reps in the tank. Now, what this tells me is potentially two things. It's number one, potentially that advanced lifters, um, because they've grown the most, like they've grown a big chunk of their potential in muscle mass already. It's like the body's quite resistant to, to pushing beyond that. So the stimulus is therefore needs to be more severe, i.e. Um, uh, training to failure. But another thing it could just mean is that um, like the inexperienced people just don't truly know what max is or they don't know how to gauge it. And that could potentially sort of um, work into the study that, that you quoted with the 10 reps on the bench thing. It's like um, with recreational lifters, it's true. They just don't know what what a three, two, one. They don't even know what failure looks like. They might tell you it's failure, but I can guarantee you if you scream the fuck out of them, they'd pull a few more. And it's like, okay. Like for most of those people, telling them to train a failure is probably the smartest move than telling them to do three RER because they might think it's failure and it's that put a three RER and you're like, perfect. <laughs> it's like, that's good. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, 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 it's so true. Like that, that people just have a terrible gauge of it. And I don't think that in terms of training studies that there's been any that have looked at RER. I think, I think there's a couple coming through in like powerlifters with like the Eric Helms group at AUT um, where they're looking at like some advanced guys. Um, but again, it's like down the powerlifting route. Um, and that's always tough to work into the bodybuilding domain because I actually do think that RER is more of a beneficial approach for powerlifters and, yeah. and, and strength athletes. Um, but for bodybuilders, it's like we're using powerlifting data to frame our approach. Some people are, and I don't think that's the best way to do it um, because powerlifters aren't trying to get fucking jacked. You know, they're just trying to get strong and they're trying to and trying to recover optimally and, and things like that. Um, and like their volume load needs to be a lot more carefully um, manipulated when they are sort of training in those like four, five, six rep maxes and, and things like that, like they do. Um, but yeah, it would be great to see. Um, like a group of experienced bodybuilders and sort of how, how accurately can they truly gauge RAR because fuck, I reckon like even some of the people we thought were the greatest bodybuilders ever, like they'd probably struggle to, to gauge an RAR too. Uh, I, like, I think I do. I think I do. Like, even when, even when I say like, okay, we're going to failure here on this. Like, I, th I think that, I think like there's a grinder, like it's that last rep slow. And I'm, I, I, there's a millisecond little conversation I have in my head where I'm like, that's it. And then I think, let's just try again anyway. And I get another and I'm like, fuck, motherfucker. Like, I thought that was it. Like, but there was another. Like, so this is someone who's like so anal about this and thinking about it all the time. And like, it makes up a big chunk of my livelihood and I'm still getting it wrong. So what do we think about Joey, who is a weekend warrior, like just jumping in, the, like does this for a hobby and, and, and fun? Like, how wrong do you think he's getting it? Probably way off the mark. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, uh, and it's funny, that's one of the things I was going to ask you is, 
if it's more applicable to powerlifters. And I would agree, because I think in, in part of their recovery isn't just muscular, we're lo- looking at neurological recovery and joint recovery. And we know exactly. joint injuries are way higher um, in that realm. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, no fault to, to the recreational lifters who don't know better. I think it's more fault on the coaches who are saying, oh, yep, RAR four is fine, RAR three is fine. And just assuming, because a lot of times when you look at it and you ask that coach or that influencer, like, who's your training partner? It's another one of you who's really experienced who probably can maybe gauge it a little bit better, you know, and safely do it. Mm-hmm. So if you're telling your clients online who aren't that experienced, it's a different game. And this is also why I always tell people too, like in-person training is so important. I trained people for six and a half years in person, like before I became online coach. So to me, I watched it with everyday people. And then I have uh, my brother-in-law, a couple of homies, like come to the gym and train who aren't experienced and I can tell them what to do today. You know, so it's different. I can see the difference because it's it is it's a skill, you know, and, and I even think for me, man, like squats, deadlifts, I'll, I'll, I'll intentionally keep it safe. But almost everything else, I basically just try to take to failure. And I know I'm not actually yep. there because it's like a mental thing. It, honestly, at that it point, is. You got to be kind of crazy. Yeah, straight up. And I'll tell you I'll tell you a cool story just quickly. So um, I'm prepping this uh, WBFF pro um, bikini girl. She's got a good amount of muscle. She's been uh, like deep in the evidence-based community for a good like three, four years, multiple competitions, had multiple coaches that like you and I would nod our heads to. And she was all about the sort of like when she came to me all with the RAR approach, like her her training coach before, like hard on that stuff. We'd be like RAR four, one week, three, two, then like deload back to four. And so like we're doing, we're structuring a training and um, I was lucky enough to be able to do some stuff with her in person. Um, and we're like looking at RDLs and um, I was like, okay, show me a, uh, like what you would normally do for your RDLs with the RAR2 in your normal program that you did last week. And she grabs the 22.5 kilo dumbbells um, and I watch her set and she puts them down and like she's puffing a bit. And, I, and like in my head, I'm like, that's not an RR2. But like, th- this is someone who's a pro who's been within the evidence-based community for years, is considered as an advanced level, is a coach herself and has 60 clients underneath her that she's telling how to do RR2. Two weeks later, she's doing the same reps clean with 45 kilo dumbbells. And it's like, okay. Now we start imagining like person A and person B, like person A who stayed with the 22 and a halves doing RAR2 all the way through, like into prep. Then you've got person B with the 45s for the same reps. It's like, okay, we can start to imagine where some differences in the end outcome might arise. So I think lot, everyone says it sort of off the cuff, like, yeah, like RAR is pretty hard to gauge for those new noobs. And it's like, we're all noobs with RAR, I think to some degree, like, even the experienced people are not are not fucking as good as they think they are. Like, and we're starting to see this firsthand. And like, I'll admit to it. Like, I don't think I'm I'm as good um, as I should be. But like, I don't think anyone is. <laughs> well, like most people, I haven't come across someone that it seems to be like perfect. But I'm sure there's some people are out there. But that would be the exception to the rule, not the rule. You know, um, yeah. like there is a lot of people who think they're doing it great and are considered by everyone else as 
um, higher level athletes within the evidence-based community in the fitness industry and, and, and they're making big blues, big mistakes. And like I said before, like leaving a shitload on the table. And if you're leaving so much on the table, like for months and months and months, like you're selling yourself so short with what you could become. And I think that's just a massive shame. Yeah. Well, you know, like now that I think about it too, um, it's a, a great example of this because obviously that I, I've seen the client you're talking about too. So it's a really good example for those listening. But um, if there was a, like if we saw RAR and RPE get in, implemented into the bodybuilding and, and powerlifting and physique space, and we also could correlate a massive decrease in like um, muscle tendon ruptures, tears, like injuries, stuff like that, then I'd be like, oh, okay, like maybe this makes sense. But there's really no like correlation. I even <laughs> think about like, like I remember like almost being proud to say like, man, I haven't deloaded in like four months and like thinking it was a good thing. And then now that I think about it, cause deload week starts next week and I like, can't wait. And I'm like thinking now, and I'm like, man, I don't know if that's a good thing. Cause it's like, I, I was leaving so much on the table that I just didn't, I didn't need a deload. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I, associ- I, I associate with that with so much because when I was doing like the RAR based training, rest day would come around or like my second rest day would come around like fuck like do i have to take the rest day like yeah. i don't fucking want to and like now that rest day comes and i'm like <laughs> i'm so happy i'm so happy like yeah. for that rest day and like that's when you should take a rest day it's like when you need rest it's like if you don't feel like you need the rest day are you training hard enough maybe not Maybe not. And it's the same thing, same thing with deloads. Like we got these guys doing like three weeks of sub sub maximal training and like, Oh, they take a week off. (laughs) It's, 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 we like, we laugh about it, but that is the reality for like a lot of people. And like they, they, they sit in their chairs laughing at the guys placing in Olympia, like idiots. Like they do it so wrong, like, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just absurd. It's absurd. And like yeah. the, these Olympia Olympia guys who like fuck, what's a deload? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it wouldn't yeah. have taken a deload in years, if, if ever. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's very interesting. So, like, switching gears back to the same topic, but with the nutrition aspect, um, one of the things I wanted to bring up to you today is like, when is it necessary to focus on the one percent? Right? We've had this conversation before, where it's like there's a lot of things that might make such a small difference, but if that small difference gets stacked on top of the next little thing and the next little thing and the next little thing, there's something to it. And, and again, going back to the people who, like you said, we're, we're laughing at them because they're going to failure. They're doing these things and they're killing it. Usually if you pay attention to what those people do and they're taking every 1% they can because they want to optimize everything. And I think uh, what you were saying about the evidence-based community with the nutrition aspect is kind of similar to that, right? They're almost like, ignoring every little thing and just focusing on calories so i guess like to me or or for you the question is is when are the one percent things necessary and like what is your argument to the people that they're so tied to that research about calories because a lot of it is it's very experience-based and again when i look at you even if you look at my diet or look at people who stay lean year-round stay muscular lean round they don't really follow an if it fits your macros approach they track their macros but they eat like a bro most of the time they feel better. Yeah. It's, it's easier in your gut. It's more, it's more satiating. I just, but I think now it's just like insulin sensitivity doesn't matter. Like all the P ratio stuff came out. It's all nutrient timing is garbage. Like there's just so much that it, it, one, it makes, it takes a lot of the fun shit out of bodybuilding to be honest with you. But also I think there's, there's gotta be a good argument 
like what is yours towards that stuff for those people that are tied to that calorie research yeah so there is a big chunk of the fitness community who will basically say according to the research get your calories in point get your minimum protein consumed and train at least four rar and nothing else matters it's like nothing nothing matters that's all you need to do like and you've optimized the the process and if you want to look strictly at the research to some degree they're right so we've got all these one percenters that you touched on and these one percenters food source selection in your diet eating consistency meal frequency meal timing peri-workout nutrition supplements just a that's just a few I call them one percenters and examining one of these one percenters in isolation in a research study let's say we take out sort of meal frequency and we test meal frequency like uh can let's say we test three versus six meals consumed per day and more than likely because this is just the reality of research being some like recreational lifters with the with the inclusion criteria that you've got to be of doing like at least three workouts per week for the last six months that's usually like the the minimum to be classed recreational lifters and we want to see if three versus six meals makes a difference and the analysis comes through and no significant difference people go on twitter meal frequency doesn't matter just eat as many meals as you want per day and i was one of those guys who was like straight on twitter like meal frequency fuck it doesn't matter do what you want to do preference is key and but then we actually think about it for a minute it's like okay we're not trying to say that meal frequency is the holy fucking grail to gains and shreds and, and muscle gain but it could potentially have some benefit it's going to be likely small would that benefit that small benefit be able to be detected when we consider the variation amongst a group of recreational trainees probably got some drinking two three times a week probably got some missing meals probably got some missing workouts probably got some people having all-nighters like all these sort of things like this is noise this is data noise and the more noise there is the harder it is to detect a significant effect so when we consider the the cohort that we're working with here who are, are not robots they're not pro bodybuilders who sort of living the regimented lifestyle all the time it's going to be a lot of variation amongst amongst this cohort it then when we think about that it's like okay well there's no surprise we didn't detect a significant difference with mill frequency for that cohort how big the how big the benefit is well we're not sure um but if we go back from experience and we're like okay well, who are the best physiques in the world what are they doing like, okay they're having five to six meals per day uh, are there many of the top guys having three meals per day none okay that probably is starting to point us in a little bit of a direction so that's like one example of one one percent where it might even be more than one percent but it's probably going to be adding some benefits but the benefit is not large enough to be detected in the research when we're using a recreational cohort there's not that committed to all the other variables and having them on point and then we have something like peri-workout nutrition like um, fast acting proteins like in close proximity to your workout afterwards and having like a pre-workout meal with proteins and carbohydrates again tested in isolation effect size eh, 
not really worth worrying about. So everyone says, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Peri-workout nutrition, just get your calories in, get your protein in, distribute it how you want. But it's like, okay, now we're potentially adding the small benefits that couldn't be detected by the research of meal frequency, meal timing. We add it to the benefits of um, peri-workout nutrition, getting your protein in quickly after your workout. And then all of a sudden we're starting to accumulate something here. Now in isolation, not detectable in the research but we're accumulating these benefits. And then all of a sudden we might add four, five, six, seven of these variables that we consider the one percenter at the time. All of a sudden it's making a 10% difference. And now it starts to paint a picture. Like when we look at, okay, what the, what the top guys are doing, they do have their meal frequency in check. They do have their meal timing in check. They do have their peri-workout nutrition in check, all of those things. And it's fairly consistent across a lot of what the top guys are doing. And then you say, okay, well, is there many guys at the top who aren't doing any of that? It's like, oh, no, there's not. There's not really. And then, then, we can, then we can start to basically use that to frame, frame our decision-making and uh, our methods. So I think what the key is here, and, and this was a big transition that I had to go through personally, was understanding the limitations of the science and being able to being able to criticize studies and not blindly accepting a conclusion that you see on PubMed and sharing it to your story. So yeah, science is great. I'm a PhD and science has been my whole life, but what we need to do is understand the limitations of it and understand that things aren't black and white in science. They can, they can guide us, they can put us, they can make it so, that, so we're warm amongst the area but once we get warm i think to really sort of nail down on those details we're going to actually have to start combining experience and sort of looking at sort of what the successful people are doing and and people hate that people in the evidence-based community hate that because like oh it's just anecdote that's weak evidence it is weak evidence but it's still evidence and it still contributes towards the overall decision making process yeah no i love that i think that's a good way of explaining it because um there's, I mean, even the the criteria of, of only three days a week, we work with a lot of gen pop, but I always call them advanced gen pop because it's, it's people, they're not competing in anything usually, but they're interested in enough in this stuff that they're listening to people like us talk about it, right? And so like, I think of them like, well, man, like this client is, is a mom, she's an everyday person, but she, she lives five days a week. She's got a stressful job. She's into this. Like, so even her and her level of, of advancement and seriousness is even above some of the criteria of what's used in some of these studies, right? And then I think about, okay, it doesn't directly change fat loss or muscle growth, but if we plan her meals according to a specific meal timing, she's going to adhere to the macros and calories better, which is going to make the result better. So like, I think sometimes people are only looking for one result when it can be indirectly helping other things that also help that result too, you know? Um, and that's just that those are things people never think about. Uh, so, you know, we're going to wrap this up here because I want to respect time, but like the follow-up question with that is, do you have like, now that you've made this shift, do you have a, uh, I guess like a lens or a filter? Cause I'm just thinking like, how can we look at research and, and know when to go. And I feel like I'm pretty good at this now, but I know a lot of people struggle with it. And I did at a certain point of, you see this, how can I immediately go, okay, like that's cool, but let me put my like filter on it so I can, you know, think about practicality as well and see what I can pull from that without just blindly trusting it as the gospel. It's such a good question because the answer is so hard. And <laughs> I, 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 I learned this when, um, when I published the ice cap trial, my diet break study. So like a two year study in the works from like 
initial like recruitment to, to getting it published. Massive, massive project. It took up 75% of my life, two years. Um, and so like this becomes your baby, right? You're sort of like working on this every day for extended period of time. And then you finally get to like publication and you're like, oh, geez, people are going to love this. Like they're going to love all the work that I put into this. Um, like all the specifics, all the details, like they're going to appreciate it. No, they don't care. They, it gets published and they will like check a couple of words in the abstract and then they'll slide down to the conclusion and then they'll take a screen grab for Instagram or like work it into an infographic or something like that. And that's the problem is like with the social media age that we're in, things is getting faster and faster and people have less and less patience. And like a perfect example of this is like these fucking crazy reels and TikToks that are coming up now where it's like my daily routine and they're like five seconds and there's like 70 clips like and then it ends. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, I can't even fucking see. Have you, you know what the ones I'm talking about? Yeah. Like they just like go so quick. I can't even fucking like see what's actually happened. And then like it's on to the next one. It's like that is like literally like the mindset of people um, consuming media these days. And then I'm putting together a 40,000 word paper. And I'm like, oh, God, they're going to love to read this. They're not. But you got like you got 10 seconds with them tops because like then it's like back to Instagram. Bam, 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 bam. And like you've got less than 10 seconds to keep them occupied. And it's like when you think about that, it's like, OK, how, how do we then with 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 a society like that, that we're trying to influence, how do, how do we teach them to slow down? Because that's essentially what, you, what, what needs to be done. That if, if people could just slow down for a second and not just read the last line of the abstract and maybe a couple of lines of the conclusions, they're gonna give themselves a chance to actually be able to execute some critical thinking and maybe dig deep. In, no, you don't even have to dig deep slide a little bit into the middle of the paper. People are like, what the fuck? Middle of the paper? I've never been there. And like, go and look, <laughs> go and look at like the, the, the methods and like, okay, what, what, what sort of people were recruited here? Like, what was their status? How long was the training? Like, what were they doing outside of the training? And then you can actually start to frame a decision um, through your own knowledge and through your own experience. And that is so much more powerful than just pulling out a conclusion. And, and I, I was a little bit guilty of that early on. Um, and because like these papers is coming out and, it, and we, are, we are this like social media, it rewards frequency and quantity of content. Like that's how you stay relevant. And the, like, the harsh reality is, is like five shitty posts per, per week is probably gonna like get you more views than like one that you spend a whole lot of time with and make, make really perfect because they're still only spending fucking 10 seconds on it before they're ready to scroll. So we're, we're fighting a battle here with like the, the, the era that we're in and what people want versus what's gonna actually advance the industry and make us sort of be able to move forward. Yeah, that's exactly why I love podcasts because you came out with that and I interviewed you on it. Not, you know what I mean? Like, cause I know there's a lot of people mm-hmm. that will do that. And it's like, okay, we can put people in the right position to talk for an hour plus on this topic or mm-hmm. YouTube, which we just started getting into, but I know you've been doing it for a while. And it's like, we can go for a little longer and keep people's attention. We're big on even, vlogs. It, so we have a bunch I, of written content, but same thing, right? It's longer. 
I, I agree with you there, like 100%, like the podcast, YouTube's great because you can actually get someone like sitting down for, for 20 minutes. You give a chance to actually make an impact with them. But a some bullshit of me talking for like 60 seconds will get me 300 followers. Like mm -hmm. a video I posted yesterday, 20,000 views, 150 comments. I made it in five minutes. Yeah. A YouTube a YouTube vlog where I'm like education, like training, like planned out the whole storyboard before half a day of filming, editing, revising, uploading. Lucky if I get a thousand views on it. And it's like plus I'm plus the costs of like getting a videographer, the editing fees, all that sort of stuff. It's like, geez, it's it's like we're not rewarded. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not rewarded for putting out the good quality stuff. That's actually going to be able to help people because we still got these motherfuckers that like, they don't want to see more than a minute of us before they're scrolling. Well, like, and the only rebuttal I would say to that man is like the, and it's actually cool. I'm actually, uh, I'm out of town next weekend speaking at a seminar on like online business, stuff like that. And I actually talk about this exact thing in my speech. And it's like the, the people who will consistently do what you're talking about are the people that end up winning long-term because one, I mean, people see this with the algorithm Instagram shit right now, and it's going to change and it's going to change. And then it's going to switch to a different platform. It's just, it's what happens. But the people who will invest their time and effort and money into getting great results are the people, they're the, the small amount of people who are actually watching those 20 minute videos or listening to hour long podcasts or reading the yeah. ebook. You know what I mean? So, um, cause I get it. It's frustrating. I just like now I can like kind of sit back and go, okay, th I think I got this and I get it. Like the people who are actually committed are those people that want to watch that shit. It's less people, but mm. it's just like what we were talking about at the beginning. There's far less people that are committed to actually getting results. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that that's, that's sort of why I still stick out, stick mm -hmm. out YouTube, even though, even though like it's not profitable for me and, and like it costs a lot and takes a lot of time. It's like, respect to the motherfuckers that are coming on and, and watching for that 25 minutes because fuck me i would trade 10 people that are watching my youtube videos for five thousand watching a watching a reel like the of mine that goes for a minute like honestly like mm -hmm. because i can't i know that i can't impact people that much with 60 seconds i can't like it's just like oh cool like or a laugh or like a, scroll on i've forgotten about it forgotten about you in two minutes but like someone who's willing to invest 20 minutes with me to like listen to the shit that i've got to say it's like that's impactful there like mm -hmm. that's making a difference that's making a difference so that's why and i'm probably it's probably a motivation for you to do podcasts and things like that is like we 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 get fulfillment out of knowing that we are making a difference and a positive impact on the people who want it and who are actually committed yeah. and want, want to improve themselves 100% man and then like dude shit we I mean, we got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients now uh, that work with my team and the amount of people that say it's because they listen to podcasts or they read like a really long blog they found on google versus oh I saw that that quick reel you did on uh that, that chicken <laughs> recipe <laughs> you know it's just not the case and shit I mean it's and it's even for me too like thinking about how I originally found you and then like what I, what content I consume from you the most 100% it's youtube like that's because that's what I like watching. I get out of so. And guess what? I'm one of the motherfuckers that actually invests in working with yeah. you. So, um, but now 100, percent dude. So, uh, we'll wrap it up here because I know we're we're crunched on time. Uh, it's early there and it's late here. But uh, we, uh, I, dude, I could have gone on so many 
different tangents. So we'll have to do this again sometime because I got a bunch of other topics that I think would be really good to, to tap on within this whole broad topic. But it's a conversation that I think a lot of people need to hear and they haven't heard on my podcast yet. So I'm glad that we touched on it. Um, real quick, where can everybody find all of your content, the, the quick, easy stuff, but also the long form stuff. And, uh, <laughs> your, uh, you just dropped an ebook, which was super good. I just read it, the, the Muscle Growth uh, Nutrition Manual Guide. Uh, easy Thank read, you, people, but really, really good because it, it does balance what we're talking about right now. It's like, here's the facts and the science. Here's what I do. Here's what I think you guys should apply. Um, so just wherever you, people can find all that. Yeah, so my most active um, is Instagram, just at Jackson Pios, one word. I've got my link in my bio to my website there, which is jacksonpiosfitness.com. And for the people who uh, uh, can spend more than 60 seconds on me, YouTube as well, Jackson Pios, that's that's the place where um, I'm really trying to put out a bit more longer form content where you can walk away and, and, and have 100% learnt a few things that can sort of help you to level up your physique, your knowledge, either, either or. Oh, I love it, man. I'll put all that in the show notes for people to check out. And uh, man, I appreciate you spending the time with me. No, it's always fun chatting with you, dude.